back to the Marvel Movie Minute, a daily podcast in which we explore the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time. In this, our fifth season, we're looking at Joe Johnston's 2011 film, Captain America, The First Avenger. I'm Andy Nelson from the Next Real Film Podcast. And I'm Matthew Fox, and I'm also here. Oh, wait. God. <laughs> and I'm uh, Pete Wright, and I have all these strong I feelings see. about lighting and scenery. And... <laughs> okay. This is the day that we're all doing impressions of each other, I see. <laughs> It all comes down to this. I mean, you quite literally started it. I was just trying to get in the way of the interloper that is our dear friend Matthew Fox. Look, it took four minutes, four days, but I've learned my lesson. I've been very quiet. I have have strong feelings about life. That's what I sound like to you? I, I am quite certain that the the fact that the last two episodes were significantly shorter than the first couple and i did far less ranting is entirely because of my learning restraint not because the content was about things that i just couldn't find something to rant about it was all about lighting and scenery and film noir so well i will say when pete mocks me and and pretends to do my voice it always ends up sounds like sounding like kermit the frog so you know what i I think i think in the scope of things we're doing okay hi ho i love movies That's about it. I was just going to make fun of Arizona and its ridiculous time zones, but you know, where you go. Yeah, it sure doesn't take long There's to do that. So many, so many things, so many things. Well, we are talking about minute sixty-five today. End of the week, get a little punchy here. <laughs> minute sixty-five begins with Steve finally finding Bucky and ends with two seconds left on the countdown clocks. Back again, as you hear, Matthew Fox is joining us again. Hello, and uh, yeah, we're here to talk about minute sixty-five. Everyone ready? Yeah. So we dig in. Yeah. Let's do it. Actually, actually, first, I would like to start this minute uh, doing things backward. Matthew, we like to ask our guests uh, about their favorite Captain America moments. And I know I didn't warn you, but you, sh- you had a whole season of us asking other guests this. I would like to think that you had thought, we just may throw this your way. So here we are <laughs> now, finally, Minute 65, asking you, what would you say is your favorite Captain America moment? So you know how Schmidt... I, I keep hammering on this idea that he doesn't think anyone else is going to use the same things against him. Yes. I might have thought that our hosting, Andy, you and I, was so special and unique <laughs> that you would not hit someone else with that. I feel cheated on. I, but anyway. <laughs> Hoist by thine own petard, sir. Which is all things that I'm doing while I stall yeah. to try and figure out which are my favorite Captain America moments. Um, I think the speech he gives in Winter Soldier. Um, where he basically is talking to all the people who work at S.H.I.E.L.D. who aren't HYDRA and saying, look, I can't do this without you. And Abed from Community is listening to him and they're all getting riled up because he gives this beautiful impassioned speech about why HYDRA is wrong and why the little guys can stand up. And it's tarnished a bit because then nothing they do has any significance, which I think was a mistake in the movie. But it, it is such a beautiful Captain America moment. So I would choose that. And then Captain America is, I think, a very good character, but one who I frequently disagree with. And so my other favorite moment of his, because I love to talk about it, is when in Infinity War and Endgame, I think it's Infinity War, he says to Vision, you can't kill yourself. You cannot sacrifice your life to save other people because we don't trade lives. 
because that statement is utterly ridiculous coming from Kat. Because what is jumping on a grenade to protect everyone else? It's trading your life to protect everyone else's. He is simply not allowing Vision to do the heroic things that he gets to do. And it it, it is just such a – at first I thought it was a very badly written moment. And then I realized, no, it's actually a brilliant moment for Cap. It's just that everybody else doesn't realize it shows Cap's an idiot sometimes. Um <laughs> Just I, I idiot or just, just massive double standard, right? That's what I, yeah. I think that's exactly right. That is like part of the legacy as much as I love Cap and his patriotism and his honor and all of that is I, I love the, his ignorance to his own double standard, right? That's yeah. that's, that, that, that's a much more charitable way to put it. Yeah, I think that, that's, that's a good way to put it. But yeah, <laughs> I mean, it does make sense that Cap would do that. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's why I like that because I think you could say, well, because he has superpowers and no one else does. But that's why I think it is such a good moment that he leaps on that grenade before he gets the superpowers because he is willing to trade lives all the way back. And you can say that's an honorable thing, but to me, Vision willing to sa- – like if, if you let Vision sacrifice himself, half the world, half the universe doesn't blip out. Right. Yeah. Sorry, Vision. It's only because it's Captain America because it, really he's saying you can't do, you can't trade lives. Only I get to do that. <laughs> right. Which also, by the way, means that all of these unnamed Wakandans get to trade their lives to mm. defend, to stop Vision having to trade his life, which is – yeah. there's a lot of problems there as well, but that's – yeah. Sure. Plot. It's all plot. Yeah. Uh, and when Nata- to give one happy moment, when Natasha grabs him and kisses him and he's just kind of dazed in Winter Soldier. That's also a fun <laughs> one. That's a good one. Well, all right. Well, let's jump back into minute 65 here. So we're we're starting this minute at this point where Steve walks into Zola's uh, experiment room as it is. Uh, I don't know if it's officially named that, but it is in the script. I don't see the sign on his door or anything, but I, I kind of want that now. Uh, but this is the reunion. This is Steve finally finding Bucky after all of his searching. My first question for the two of you, we talked about this earlier in the week about this idea of Steve coming here to rescue the troops, but really to find Bucky versus Steve coming here to find the troops and accidentally finding the fact that Bucky is actually alive. How does this play for you and would it have actually played better in the same scenario had he walked in thinking Bucky was dead only to find him here? I think I like the middle ground where, like, he knows he's looking for Bucky by this point, but it's because the first time he rescues soldiers, you know, they say, why are you here? He said, I did it for Bucky. He died to help you. Or like, no, he's not dead, you know? So I, I don't think I would have liked this scene more. For me, though, and I never really noticed this until we did this close analysis, it raises a completely different question, which is that I always thought that Bucky becomes a winter soldier because he's the one who Hydra agents find. You know, he he falls from the cliff, but he somehow lives and or like has is half alive and like he's the one they capture, he's the one they're able to bring back to life and turn into the Winter Soldier. But what we see here is that they're clearly already beginning the super serum kind of experiment like the super soldier experiments on Bucky. And I'm left with no idea why they picked Bucky specifically, because even as much as I was saying before that I think people know about Captain America, I, I don't think there's any reason for Hydra to know that Bucky is his good friend. And and if, if so, then he's kind of the wrong person to choose for this because that's just going to aggravate Cap more. Um, so what what do you all think? Why do you think they picked Bucky specifically? I think it's totally random. That's my take. Like, I've, I've always felt like this was just like they could have picked they could have walked down that weird circular 
prison hall and picked any one of the of the folks that were in the cages and taken them out and put them in the in Zola's playroom. Um, that it ended up being Bucky was, you know, fortuitous for. Was that not what it was in the script? I, I like I that forget. it's a playroom now. Yeah, right. <laughs> it went from the experiment room to the playroom. Yeah. Zola's so we house. just have we have two just coincidences. One that. They wind up getting his best friend, and two, they wind up picking the guy who they'll later get again when he falls off a train. Right. Okay. I actually like to think that what actually happened is that they put them all through a week-long boot camp and had them do a bunch of tests, uh, physical, maybe flagpole climbing, trying to figure out who is the person that they really think is the right person to do their own super soldier experiments on. And it was Bucky. And in the end. In the end, after the week, they ended up picking Bucky. Wow. We could. That is what fodder for like Marvel to do the other timeline. Like just show us what was happening while Cap was getting, you know, juiced. It was all Bucky. That that could be a fun story as well, because then it shows like Cap is picked because he is the very because he is very much not the physical specimen. But Red Skull picks Bucky because he is the physical specimen. Um, That could be a fun dynamic. What I wished was because to me, the thing that I have the hardest trouble reconciling is that the person they picked also is the person who literally falls into their laps. That's where my questions raise about, did they really pick Bucky to do this? Because it's awfully convenient that he's the one who falls off the train, off the cliff, and they are able to find him. And I don't know, I end up rolling my eyes a little at, uh, if he was the one that they picked specifically, the fact that he conveniently is the one who they're able to find later. And and there again, I think with five seconds, you could have fixed that. I think... A, you could have a bunch of the soldiers fall, but you just see them be like, oh, let's grab him. Or no, you don't want to show that. That's fair. But like, you know, that that we know that a bunch of soldiers fall. So now we think it's special that they picked Bucky or that like during the fight, like maybe maybe like one of the soldiers like does something specifically targeting Buffy, uh, Buffy. Wow, there's another story. <laughs> Bucky to try to push Bucky off the track, like if in some way. The Hydra soldiers were in some way responsible for the fact that it is Bucky who falls, not one of the other Howling Commandos. Yeah, I think then it all ties together much better. Yeah. I think you both are wildly overthinking their forethought in this area. I think they just want you to go with coincidence. Wait, wait, wait. We had how many minutes about where is Steve looking? And now we're talking about I'm overthinking things? Yeah. 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 Did we not talk about double standard? Look. Okay. (laughs) Go ahead, Andy. I'm sorry. Scenery is very important to a movie. (laughs) Curses. What is – I can't help but think that they were doing something with Bucky because when Zola grabs his papers, as we saw in the last minute, there is an image of a person in some sort of a crazy suit or something. And it makes me think they are trying to figure out something. I don't know if it's the super soldier. I don't know exactly what they're trying to do with Bucky. For all we know, it's an entirely different experiment that Zola is doing here as opposed to what they will end up doing to him later. And I think largely it is a very coincidental thing that he's here undergoing Zola's experiments, whatever they may be, and ends up being the the one that they pull out of the water and, and do experiments with later. Um, I, I'm not sure the experiments are the same. Right. I, but, but I do agree that I think it's incredibly coincidental 
I don't I don't necessarily think that they like had a tracker in him or something and have been looking for him all this time just so they could find him and continue the experiments. But um, I don't know. I mean, just on the suit, and I will say there. There's nothing that makes you more of a film conspiracy theorist than minute-by-minute minute analysis because you just start seeing all of these patterns that probably don't exist. But – so here's my crackpot theory. What if in the original conception of the movie, as they wrote it, they thought – or as they started storyboarding it out or whatever, they thought there was going to – like that part of the experiment of Steve was going to be you put him in a suit because isn't that part of like – experimentation, weird science nonsense. And then someone decided, wait a minute, you're going to cover up the most beautiful chest in Hollywood, or at least one of them? No, that's not what we're doing. We're showing his muscles. And so they ditched the suit, but then kind of forgot that they were still planning to create this prop later that had a drawing of a suit on it. Because like, if Cap was in a suit, then that drawing, I think, is much more directly, oh, okay, clearly they're trying to recreate that experiment. Well, what if? If I may, just yes and your crackpot theory. What if <laughs> now that Erskine is gone and everybody knows they can't duplicate the super soldier serum, this is Zola saying, you know, what would be awesome since we don't have the serum is more people's brains in suits. And isn't that an interesting tie into what happens to Zola later? Yeah, yeah, that's actually pretty interesting. That's possible. It, is the is the Zola's brain in a computer? Does that appear in the comics anywhere, or is that created for Winter Soldier? No, Zola's character in the comics actually is essentially like a uh, a, a TV in the chest of like a, a robot, right. and his face is on it. Like he he is a very much comic booky character that makes like no logical sense, and so they really changed him drastically for the film. And um, I guess that the fact that he ends up kind of being the man inside the machine later is just their way of kind of creating that nod to the character's comic origins. That's what that's what this starts to this suit line starts to feel like to me. It's like Zola already has a bent toward um, man in the machine kind of investigation. It, it does make me once again, like we have Zola as a great as a great foil to uh, Schmidt. But it does make me wish that we also have a devotee to Schmidt because one of the questions I'm always left with is, okay, so Bucky falls. Someone clearly takes him to Russia and recreates Hydra in the Soviet Union to turn him into the Winter Soldiers was all this other stuff. But according to this movie, like Schmidt founds Hydra. Schmidt then blows up or kills or cap kills everyone else connected to Hydra. So who keeps Hydra going? Well, we we know that Kruger had had already whittled his way into the U.S. government, like he was working for the State Department. Uh, so theoretically, was he, that, yeah, was he that early? Was was Kruger? I thought Kruger comes later. No, he he was the one who uh, killed Erskine after the after Cap's transformation earlier in the film. Oh, okay, yeah, I see that. Okay, yeah, I have a I have a pivoting question before you pivot. Yeah. I I am looking at images of Dr. Zola in the comics and with his little tiny kind of robot head um he is completely the drawing that Erskine ha or that that Zola had on his desk. So that's actually oh, a very okay. interesting comic book nod what Zola was actually trying to do with Bucky apparently was put him into a body like that image that you have on the piece of paper on his desk is 
Zola in the comics. Nice. Which makes sense because maybe it is that, you know, at this point, Bucky, like Bucky's basically a broken body and it's not till 20 years later that the Russians figure out how to actually fix his body instead of just taking his brain. It's very interesting that this was the experiment. Like this was essentially Mm -hmm. what they're saying is the experiment that they're they're doing with him. They're going to put his consciousness into some form of a robot body. So it's cute. (laughs) So so cute. All right. I've got a question that's liable, liable to buy us 45 minutes. Um, And, and so here we go. I got nowhere to go. (laughs) Early in this week, we had quite a conversation about Cap's motivation. Is he more motivated to be the patriot and go save the the people who were imprisoned, or is he, um, you know, is he actually just looking for Bucky? In this minute, he says out loud for everyone to hear, "Come on, I thought you were dead." Does this answer the question as to his motivation at all for either of you? Are you saying that maybe maybe like it, the script got rewritten a couple times because because this doesn't fit with the earlier moments, so. Are you suggesting that maybe he had a different motivation and they changed the script? I am wondering if his motivation, if we should have seen all along a calculated and specific motivation that he's just there to save the soldiers and that, in fact, uh, he really did think Bucky was dead. And yet the script previously does not seem to indicate that to be the case. I am in a quandary. I mean, that would seem to back up my crackpot theory from before. I've had a couple this week of the original script is he doesn't know he's alive. But then five years, someone was like, can we punch up that relationship? And so then we later insert the scene of him desperately looking for Bucky's name on the list. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It ends up. Uh, I mean, yeah, I I feel like there were some competing ideas here as to what was going on. And I think that they left this the way it is because they love the joke. This is a scene about Stephen Bucky's like banter. Like what we have here is a return to I'm going to say something and you're going to throw me a zinger. I'm going to mm-hmm. throw say something now and you're going to throw me a zinger. It's like very much that whole thing through this entire scene. And it really plays like when Steve says that it's I mean, honestly, he's not like in shock and like he's over, he doesn't play it as he's overjoyed that. Oh, thank God, Bucky, you're actually alive. It's very casual. Like all of yeah, this is right. very casual when he rescues him and it comes off as playing let's let's start our banter again he like the i thought you were dead i thought you were smaller like it it plays into the scripting of it so much as to like the cute one-liners and i think if they had changed kind of like is he going here to save all the soldiers and thinking and believing in his heart that bucky is dead and oh thank god bucky you're actually alive versus i want to go in and save bucky let's make sure we're emphasizing that relationship and he's really kind of on the hunt for Bucky. I, it's competing. It's competing and it plays that way. Yeah, I think so too. Here's my one way to be charitable and, and square the circle, which is that because he does look for Bucky and they tell him, oh, he got taken off to that experiment room or whatever where no one comes back from. They don't say he did. They just that he's looking for him. He says, well, there is an isolation. Or right. right. Of, OK. Yeah. It's it's very vague. Yeah. Anyway, go ahead. My point is maybe he goes there thinking Bucky's alive. He hears that and and hears that people may I mean, I'm I'm working real hard for this one, but like <laughs> maybe he like he thinks Bucky's alive, then he thinks Bucky is dead, then he realizes Bucky is alive again. It ain't much, but from this movie I could buy it. 
Yeah. <laughs> I'll take it. I uh, and and here's why because I think that competition of signals in this movie leads to as your words Andy the banter moment and I am here for the banter moment. I love for me how the banter uh actually goes to this sort of surface level banter actually goes to deepening our their relationship together in as an audience member. I think that's a really powerful tool and it's well written. Well, and it's, I mean, we have four say something, I'll Pairs. throw you a zinger yeah. four times. Yeah. I thought you were dead. I thought you were smaller. What happened to you? I joined the army. Did it hurt? A little. Is it permanent? So far. Like, it, it just keeps coming. Like, it, we, we keep getting these moments. And I think what happens is, and I love all of it, too. I, I think all of it is a lot of fun. It plays really well, especially with these two characters and these two actors performing it. What I think is when you have lines like, I thought you were dead, I thought you were smaller, I think this feeds into one of the complaints that people have about Marvel and how they use the comedy and they, they kind of lose kind of the the drama and the, the pathos of your story in favor of the humor oftentimes in situations like this where it's like, the I thought you were deadline, like this whole thing that we're talking about, like why is he here, this whole thing with Bucky – they did it all just so they could get this this joke out of it. And I think that's why people have the complaint that they bring up with Marvel and some of these situations. I think it was a very fair complaint at the time. But I think Marvel did that thing where they were able to turn it into something good because I think this moment is wonderfully paid off when you get to Falcon and the Winter Soldier so many years later. Because one of the themes of that show – I mean there's a lot of them and this is one of the more subtle ones but it's definitely there – is that – you know, him and Falcon are spending all this time together and he's just banter, banter, banter. And Falcon is trying to actually get him to – Falcon and his therapist are both trying to get him to get past the banter and to talk about his feelings in part because, you know, like – I mean guys have always been taught like banter instead of real discussion. But like particularly guy born in the 1920s versus Falcon born, you know, in the 1990s or whatever, like he, they're going to have a very different perspective on it. And so like – I think if this movie had just been the only thing we get, it does feel a little ridiculous. And I think it is a little ridiculous. But the fact that someone clearly like remembered how much banter there was in this movie and then made a reference to that of like other people calling out Bucky for being all banter in that show many years later, like that's one of the things I love about the MCU is when it can take something like that and and and, and give a spin on it. Well, let's not not gloss over the fact that there is a real practical purpose for this kind of banter, especially as you pull them apart in pairs, is that we need some physical direction here, some blocking change in this scene to get to give us enough dialogue that buys us enough time to refresh Bucky and get him off that table. Let's get him out of there because this scene is a freight train. We have to get back with the crew and uh, the the utility of these little sequences, these little uh, pairs of of bantered lines allow us the ability to build like Lego blocks a script that gets us to that point and to cut accordingly as as time uh, requires. I also think they've established it already. And like you said, it's minute 65 and here you have me praising the writer of Captain America. Um, I hate that it always happens. But um, <laughs> maybe we should just you know, stop right now. Well, just hang <laughs> I, I think I, I think this this to me felt intentional. Think back to the early scenes. I think it's very clear that Bucky thinks if, you know, five foot four Steve Rogers goes to war, he's going to die. And he very clearly doesn't want his friend to die. 
But the man in the 1940s doesn't say to his friend, I really care about you. I love you as my friend and I don't want you to die. So instead, it's just constant. Come on. You're too short. You know, and there's like one line where he's just like he, he says it again in a bantery way. But he names the fact that he thinks Steve would die in the war. And and so to me, I think like at least I think they've established that that's how these two characters don't talk about their feelings. They banter even in serious moments. And so that makes this a little more palatable. Yeah. And also, I think there is a level of that feeling like it comes from the military. I think there is that element that we get naturally from the military. I mean, we've kind of already seen it with the Howling Commandos. There is that level of play that you have in these sorts of situations to just kind of cut through tension and to not have to deal with any emotional things because they have so many physical things they have to overcome at this particular moment. Well, and if you have a breakdown every time your buddy gets shot, you're you're gone because – that's your but your best buddy is going to get shot every day. Very true. You got to you got to. I mean, it's you know, in in all these lines of work where you're constantly dealing with this sort of thing, it's like you you do build those walls up. You have to close yourself off. Yeah. So, uh, well, it's a good minute. Uh, we do have a moment in here where Steve, uh, as he's kind of helping Bucky, glances around the room. We see him notice the map, map take a long stare at it. Uh, that will perhaps come into play later as uh, we find Steve remembers things really well. Interestingly, he doesn't seem to notice or at least doesn't say anything later about also seeing the blueprints for the Valkyrie on the wall next to the map. <laughs> Steve is all map. He's just all map all the <laughs> just, time. It, and also map. the map is the thing that is lit by the uh, exterior light through the window. Right. Yeah. So so how could he even be expected to see with his super eyes. And kind of like you were talking about how that building dialogue, it serves a function in the movie. I think the map does the same thing because we don't want we don't want Cap to go right after Schmidt yet, but we want to show a kind of montage of battle scenes. And so having this kind of like there's like four levels you've got to get through till you get to the big boss video game idea, it really helps to set that up of like there's a lot of fighting to go before you get back to Schmidt. Exactly. Um, one last little note that I have here. I really like that the experiment room has kind of the greenish light. We had that kind of yellowish and pinkish light out in the exterior hallway. And experiments, green, science, like it all kind of fits so well. It just it makes you think of, I don't know, sciencey goo and things like that. I, I love that we come in here and it's all green light. It just feels very, feels very sciencey. There's the one shot where Cap is actually looking at the map and it's a close up on Cap and he's got his mouth kind of open. And it reminds me of the bit in Creepshow uh, where there, <laughs> yeah. there's a there's backlit green. And I think it's the one where like Ted, uh, Danson. Ted Danson gets yeah gets buried in the sand. Yeah. As soon as you said so that, good. I went you straight knew it, to right? Ted Danson. Yep. yep. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Yeah. Uh, well, Steve and Bucky, uh, they stagger out again. You know, it's it's what needs to happen. They need to have their banter so they can get out of the room. Uh, we cut back to the exterior and we see the tank. Uh, we see Fallsworth um, blasting away the, the Tesseract blasts, not disintegrating. Again, he's actually blowing up the tower as they're rolling out of there. They uh, they take down everybody. Um, they don't we don't see them take all the troops out that are staying by the fence, but clearly they must. And uh, the troops, uh, you know, make their way through uh, through the the hole in the fence that is now there with some with regular guns, some with Tesseract guns. We'll see how all that plays out. And we end up on the uh, the detonation clock that has gone through seven minutes 
in about two and a half or maybe even less than that. Uh, we're down to two seconds as the minute comes to end. Do you have an exact time? I, Did you? N- no, I have a complaint, an exact oh, complaint, yeah, okay. which is, okay. do you notice, I think, the time in Austria is faster than the time everywhere else. These seconds, I swear, are not actual seconds. And <laughs> like this countdown clock is not actually a clock. It's just sequence of numbers sped up slightly. So are you saying that you think the film would be improved by four solid minutes of flipping switches and shoving papers into, into briefcases? Because I would challenge that. You are the film expert, <laughs> but I would challenge that <laughs> assertion. <laughs> All I'm suggesting is that when you put a clock on screen, it better damn well be a clock of real seconds. A second is a second is a second. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's obviously a a, you know a sped up an action scene. We're not seeing all seven minutes of everybody making their way. That is not my complaint. That is yeah. The complaint is that the second is not lasting a second. It's actually like it's like point eight seconds. I, point yeah, eight. I, Thank you, Andy. For, forgive me. For spreadsheet. I that. did not give <laughs> enough credit into the minutia that you would dive into. So, <laughs> this but is, I love this podcast. I apologize that I apparently just come on here to make fun of you. This you guys a, do a fantastic <laughs> podcast that I'm so glad I'm a part of. Your your, your listeners are all going to think I'm a complete a hole. I'm not like this normally. I promise. We just, not at all. Not at all. We banter. We banter. We, we banter. How should I like you guys? This is Let's, what. This is a hero second. Why? Because it's. Full screen. It is a full screen second. It better be a full second on screen. Wow. I'm going to put that on a T-shirt. I got to say, this would not have been my first choice of five minutes. And I'm very glad we found things to talk about. I was worried about it. Um, But (laughs) as Andy has learned to his unfortunate peril often, um, saying to Matthew once, hey, please do this thing is generally not enough to get me to do it. I totally forgot about picking minutes. Everyone else had picked good minutes by the time I picked them. So I picked these five minutes and we found things to say because we all love the sound of our own voices. Uh, But what I think is really great is how many times I took such joy when for some reason the five minutes that our guest got to talk us about left on a cliffhanger. And I was able to be like, sorry, you don't get to talk about the end of that cliffhanger, but I do. And so I pick minutes that end quite literally with a countdown clock in two seconds. <laughs> I, I Upon my own petard, have I been hoist? Yes. Twice this week. I live for these moments. Yeah. It, it has been a lot of fun uh, talking with you all week, Matthew. Can I close with one question that isn't in these minutes, although I, I've questioned Schmidt's motivation a lot. Th- this is the main thing about Schmidt I don't understand, and I'm hoping you two can give me an explanation. He clearly wants to blow up all the capitals of the world. He wants to show the whole world that he's in charge. I, I don't quite know how blowing up cities does that, but but fair enough, fair enough. We'll, we'll, we'll move past that. <laughs> so he wants to blow up all these cities. His plane takes off. Now, granted, Berlin is behind him, I think, in, in the way the map works. So perhaps he doesn't turn back to go to Berlin. But let's say I'm just going to jaunt over to New York City. I'm like Paris and London are right there. You can't take five minutes to go drop a bomb on those two. Like, I just have no idea. Why does he pick? I know we've got to get Cap over the ocean into the ice. But why in the world is he attacking or Lisbon or Madrid or Casablanca, <laughs> whatever? Like, there's so many big cities he could hit right there and then instead of flying all the way over the Atlantic. I Have you found his inner motivation that I missed that I can explain this? Fondue. Yeah, it's well. That would, that would be Switzerland. 
Switzerland. I was saying, you can eat fondue in other places. No, it's no, only Switzerland, it's, Pete. Maybe it's he has to keep all of Europe protected so that the fondue won't be harmed. <laughs> I honestly think, I mean, obviously you're right. He has to get over the ocean and everything. But I think the reason it's New York and not like let's blow it up in the North Pole, which probably would make more sense. And, you know, something that he would detonate in the North Pole that would then, you know, get into the atmosphere and destroy all the people or who knows. But I, I think that there is going back to this idea of the mirror characters and the fact that we have Steve Rogers from, you know, New York City as the character who is uh, the opposite side of Schmidt's coin, I think that it, it's never specified. But I think that in the movie parlance, the reason that he ends up doing New York or picking New York is because that is Steve's hometown. And it's it's kind of that the opposite. Okay. It's the reflection of him. It's again, it's illogical. There's no reason for it. And it's not specified. I just think in movie language, that ends up being the reason. Yeah, I, mean, I, I think if you're writing a comic bookie, doesn't actually make sense, just is going to do the terrible thing villain, have the villain throw out all their plans just to be spiteful to our hero. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it does, like you said, it doesn't make sense, but that's how you write these characters. Yeah. yeah. Thank God we get better villains later. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Matthew, it has been a sheer delight having you back on the show to talk about Captain America. I'm looking forward to getting you on one of these down the road. That's one of these movies that you absolutely love. I guess we'll have to wait a few, but eventually we'll get there. <laughs> Again, New Yorker, I express my love by critiquing. Uh, but but yeah, no, that is true. This is definitely probably in my bottom three of, of uh, uh, movies. And so when you start to get to things like any of the Avengers or Winter, like bring me back for Winter Soldier. I will happily host Winter Soldier. God, I can't believe I just said, oh, God, I don't. <laughs> not only did you say it, you recorded it. Yeah. Delete, wow. delete, delete. No, I mean, yeah. Once we get into phase two, there's a lot of these movies that I really, truly love. So, yeah, I'd be happy to come back there. And also, you, uh, Andy, as I said, uh, if you want to hear more Andy, well, I'll save myself promotion for later. But you both are always welcome on my podcast as well. Thank you. Oh, well, we certainly appreciate it. Uh, well, well, now's the time. So why don't you why don't you plug what it is you're up to and where people can find it? Uh, well, so if you, as I was starting to say before, if you want to find a time where I'm actually really in love with a movie that Andy didn't like, uh, go to <laughs> theethicalpanda.com, search for Thor, and you'll find he and I did a really good episode on Thor Love and Thunder, uh, which jokes aside, I think you really gave a great discussion about like how it didn't line up to the stories you wanted from the comic books and, and things like that. And I certainly had my complaints about it as well. Uh, but yeah, on, on my podcast, that's the kind of stuff you'll find. You'll find where we talk about the ethical issues of, of the movies. Um, we do not get into the difference between two or three lights in a hallway, and I apologize for that. Uh, <laughs> but we, we find some things to talk about in terms of character discussions and ethics and stuff like that. And we have a lot of fun. Uh, and then we also have a Star Wars Universe podcast. It is more review-focused. But we also – we also I, I once got a review saying that they were very mad because I had misidentified uh, a monster that is just seen as dead. On a on a on the ground that is never actually named, um, and I've never been prouder of a review because to me it's like nope, this podcast isn't about that. This podcast is about like the characters and the story and and the decisions and all that. So you can check out both of those podcasts at theethicalpanda.com. And the Ethical Panda is also kind of my internet gnome to plume, uh, and so or gnome to internet. You can that's where you can find me on Twitter, Facebook, uh, and TikTok. It's probably where I create the most. Fantastic. Awesome. We'll put all that in the show notes for everybody. And uh, thank you, Matthew. We'll see you in a future season. We appreciate you joining us this week. 
Sounds good. And Pete, thanks as always. I'm telling you, that clock strikes zero. It's cake time. The cake is a lie. (laughs) The cake is a lie. Until next time, true believers. Marvel Movie Minute is a production of True Story FM. Engineering by Andy Nelson. This season's music is Spread the News by Anthony Vega. And this season's show art is by Winston Yabo. Find the show at truestory.fm. And if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, consider doing that for this show.